0: Well, we are jumping back into Romans chapter 2 this morning. Uh, Just remember, as we talked about last week, one of the big distinctions between 1 and 2 is in in chapter 1, Paul is talking about them, about those guys, about those people in the past, and they did this and they did that, and, and sin took hold of their hearts and their lives, and uh, and and they went uh, to great lengths uh, to distance themselves from the God that they knew was because of natural revelation. But they allowed the, the the deprived thinking of their mind and of their spirit to lead them astray. And they went into all kinds of uh, of immoral acts uh, with one another and uh, toward each other in just about every way conceivable, and even probably ways we haven't thought about. Certainly, ways that are not. Listed specifically here in these things that Paul mentions. But he's talking about they. And so when we hear they, we're always thinking about them. Look how bad they are. You know, uh, those sound like really bad people. They, 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 them. They are doing things that I wouldn't do. And I really do believe that this is a literary trap on the on Paul's part. He does this on purpose. Because as soon as he shifts into gear in chapter Chapter 2, it's no longer they or them, now it is you. I think Paul is using an opportunity here that preachers do very often, and that is to give each one of us an opportunity to reevaluate ourselves where we're at right now. We need to hear that message over and over again. Because it's so easy for us to begin to focus on what other people are doing and not really pay much attention to what we're doing or what we're not doing that we ought to be doing. Paul is speaking to that sinful nature that is in every one of us. Some of you may believe that you're not really capable of doing really bad things any longer. The only reason you haven't done anything like that perhaps at this point is because God has his reins on you and he has not allowed you to go where your heart would carry you. God is the one who has put us on course and God is the one who must keep us on course. We have not the ability to do it on our own. Sometimes, would you describe yourself as having a stubborn and unrepentant heart? Those times when we're so focused upon the sins of other people, and, and, and let's face it, there have been times when you thought things like, I would never do that, I could never do that. We are very we are reformed in this church, and what I would say to you is this is if you haven't done those things, it's for one reason that's because God has prevented you from doing it. He gets all the credit. Not us, not in one not one inkling, not one ounce of credit do you and I deserve for anything. He gets all of it. Well, we're going to pick up this morning in, in verse nine and read through verse sixteen. Uh, there will be tribulation and distress for every soul and man who does evil of the Jew first and also of the Greek, but glory and honor and peace to every man who does good to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not not have the law uh, do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law of themselves or to themselves. And that that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness in their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them on the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Jesus Christ. <clears throat> we need to talk a little bit about this distinction, because you're going to see this happening a great deal in the book of Romans, that Paul very often makes a distinction between those people who called the Jews and those people who called The Greeks in some places and other times the Gentiles. Sometimes I'm not sure that people know historically where the Jews came from because we know that in the Old Testament, you know, Abraham was the father of the faith. He was also the father eventually of the nation of Israel. And those 12 tribes were the tribes that were specially blessed by God, set apart as God's possession out of all the people of the world. If you're familiar with the Old Testament history, you know that the kingdom was united only for a short time uh, in, the, in the days of David and then Solomon, and then there was a division. Judah and Benjamin went one way; the other ten tribes and, and Levi went that way. But the other nine tribes, they fell into idol worship, etc., etc., etc went a long way away from God, and they were invaded by the Assyrians, the ancient Assyrians, and they were carried into captivity, removed from the land. Now, eventually, some people came back in there. But we know that by the time uh, of Jesus, this area called Samaria, this is what we're talking about. Judah was one of the tribes of Israel. King David was of Judah. Jesus himself was a descendant of Judah. We know that God had a very special place and a very special blessing, and this is where the term Jew comes from. These are people of the tribe of Judah that have ancestry in the tribe of Judah. Now, that's kind of an unusual thing to say but because you may, may be familiar with Paul. And you know that Paul wasn't, was Paul a Jew? Was he of the line of Judah? No. He was a Benjamite. So you need to understand something that this term Jew eventually came to be applied to all of those people who had remained there in that southern kingdom after those days of diffusion, etc., 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 So don't let this confuse you. But what Paul is doing here, he's going to do later on, is this. He's making a distinction between people who would be considered Jewish and everybody else. The Gentiles, the non-Jews. Now we've been talking so far, as we began this book of Romans, about two types of revelation. We talked about natural revelation, which is... God making himself known through creation around us. And the things that we see around us, and the glory of the heavens above us, and, 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 and especially when we look at life itself, these things should draw us, every one of us, there, uh, to, to seek the God who is the creator of everything. That form of revelation is sufficient to declare people guilty and without excuse. No one can say, I did not, there's not a person that has ever lived that can say, I did not know. That excuse will not hold for anyone in God's court, ever. The Jews were specially set apart, Israel initially, because Special revelation had taken place before this. Abraham had dreams. Jacob had a dream. Others had visions. The prophets, God raised up prophets like Moses being the first one. Moses being the first one also to begin to write down special revelation in print. So we know that in the past, God spoke to our fathers in a variety of different ways. Sometimes it was dreams, sometimes it was visions, sometimes it was physical manifestations like Jesus or Moses in the burning bush. The column of fire and smoke that went before Israel as God led them through the wilderness. Just a manifestation of God's great presence there with them. But it was in the days of Moses that God began to write scripture, first of all through the prophets of old, and in the New Testament through the apostles, who were also prophets. We talked about this a little bit last week, and I just want to get into it a little bit more now, and that is this, is is those that have had the gift of special revelation because special revelation is what is necessary to bring someone to a saving knowledge, eventually, of Jesus Christ, of your desperate need for a Savior. Without it, you can't get that message. So we need to understand that the the, the real crux of what Paul is making here, the distinction is this, is between the people who had the written law who had that form of special revelation, as opposed to people who didn't. Moses began to write the Old Testament. It was added to, the scriptures were added to as time went by. And eventually all of those books that we have in the Old Testament were were incorporated into the Old Testament of the Bible. The Jews had that advantage that set them apart in a special place compared to everyone else. Everyone else was left to nothing but natural revelation. The Jews had natural revelation, but they also had the Word of God, that special revelation that He gifted to them. Everyone else was restricted to natural revelation only. So do you understand that that put Israel in a very distinct place? And eventually it wasn't Israel anymore. Now it became primarily Judah, the Jews. That put them in a very special place compared to the rest of humanity. They had that very special gift from God, that, 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 that revelation by which he really revealed himself to a great extent to these special people. Today we know this, that the church of Jesus Christ, there is a unity between Jews and non-Jews. There is no longer that distinction anymore. Along came Jesus. Jesus was the greatest means of special revelation that God has ever utilized. God himself came in human form. The New Testament came as the apostles wrote those books, or people that were very closely associated with the apostles. The Jews, up until the time of Jesus, they were stricted. They had those Old Testament scriptures, but that's all they had. Is Jesus in the Old Testament? Yes. There's all kinds of things in the Old Testament, but really foundational kinds of things. There's a sense in which the New Testament is only a greater elaboration of what's already present in the Old. But the church, over the last 2,000 years, has had the benefit of, Of the fullness of special revelation. The Bible. There are people in the world today who will never see a Bible. They'll never hear the word of God. Because that's true, we need to say shame on us. And that's true for a lot of reasons. and One of those is this, is the church hasn't been all that great at completing the Great Commission. Really, the goal of the church in every age should be that every person on this planet will hear the gospel. They will hear special revelation. They will have the Bible made available to them in their own language so they can read it and they can understand it and they can study it. This is one of the great gifts of the, of the Reformation. I don't know how much you know about the Reformation. We studied it a little bit last year when we were leading up to Reformation Sunday uh, and, and all of that. But one of the big things about the, Re- the Reformation was this. For the first time ever, the common folk were given the Word of God to be in their own hands. So they could read it, they could study it anytime they wanted to. Some people have had big advantages, and we're one of them. But just like with advantages, very often, there also comes responsibility. We've been given more, therefore more is expected of us. You see, this is saying, as I think, is what Paul was driving at here in chapter 2. <laughs> We are, of all people that have ever lived, the least excusable. Not the most, because we've been given a decided advantage over everybody else. We've been given the word of God. We must take advantage of it. So how do you feel now? Is the you you, or is Paul talking about somebody else? One of the things Paul alludes to in chapter two also is this: is there's a day of judgment coming? There's a day of wrath coming when all people will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And and I just want to say this: I we we talked about this a lot in Revelation. You need to understand. That the judgment seat of Christ is very different for believers than it is for unbelievers. Unbelievers will be cast into hell for all of eternity because of their sins against God. What I want to assure you of this morning is you ha- can have a real assurance of your salvation. You can. But it only comes when you, you know something. And that is this, it's not by my own might, not by my own ability, not by my strength to hold on to God will I make it to heaven, but by his strength laying hold of me and promising he will never let me go, I will make it to heaven. It's easy for Christians sometimes to have a condescending attitude toward other people. It's easy for Christians sometimes to jump to conclusions about, well, I would never do something like that. How could somebody possibly be such a nasty, rotten sinner as that person is? But again, I just want to remind us this morning, we're saved by grace from beginning to end. Every bit of it is grace. God sustains us. God has brought us to where we're at. We're special people only because God has said to us, you are my special person. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil. Talking about God's judgment coming. Jews will not be exempt from it who do not loathe Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. There's a sense in which I would imagine is is that their judgment from God may be the severest of all because he sent his Messiah, he sent his son to them, and and, and the vast majority of of them rejected him. It doesn't put them in a, in a place of, of having a greater sense of speciality in the eyes of God. It puts them in a place of being those who are most guilty and least of all with excuse. people who have not had the, va- the, the, the benefit of special revelation, they will be judged on a different standard. The standard is not the word of God. The standard is going to be whether how they responded to natural revelation. If they sought out that God that makes himself known so very clearly in the things that take place around us, and even we ourselves. There's a sense, my friends, in, in which a person would be better off If they never heard the word of God at all, then hearing the word of God and rejecting it. They will be the ones who will be judged the most severely. Whether they're of Jewish descent or Gentile descent. Verse 11, for there is no partiality with God. All who have sinned without the law, who would be who? The Gentiles. They'll also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Now I want to talk about something it's not specifically right here in the text but I think this underlies all of that and I would say that there's a sense in which there's a natural law. There's natural creation, there's also natural law that's available to every person. You guys are familiar with the 10 commandments. Verse 4 apply to our relationship with God. The last six apply to our relationship with each other. There's a sense in which those Ten Commandments are written on everybody's heart, in particular those last six. Everybody knows. Everybody knows. Everyone's without excuse. When they murder because they know it's something they should not do because... They certainly wouldn't like it if someone murdered them. That's nothing but common sense. Forget about everything else. That's just common sense. If you don't want to be murdered yourself, then why in the world would you ever think about murdering someone else? But people do it all the time. And it just goes to show you the depravity of the human heart. People do those kinds of things. They're going against what they know inside is wrong. If you don't want to be stolen from, don't steal from someone else. If you don't want your spouse to commit adultery against you, don't commit adultery against them. If you don't want anybody telling lies about you, don't lie about other people. You get my point? Jesus summarizes this natural law that everybody knows in a little sentence in the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 7. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. that is available to absolutely everybody. Not just those who have special revelation. Just think how the world would be. Just think how the church would be if everyone really lived according to that basic fundamental principle that everyone is aware of. Don't do anything to someone else that you would not like for them to do to you. How much better, how much different will the world be as a result of it? How different would the church be as a result of it? If we simply lived what we all know is right to do. This is a law that he's talking about in verse 15. Did they show the work of the law written in their hearts? As far as excuses go, where does that render everybody? None. None. Nobody has an excuse. Nobody has an excuse for ever murdering anyone. No one has the the excuse for ever committing adultery. No one has an excuse for stealing. No one has an excuse for bearing false witness. No one has an excuse for coveting ever. Anybody. See, in those last six commandments, what God is doing is inscripturating what we all know is true. Just by our very nature. Well, Jesus really brings things home in, the, in, in another place in the Sermon on the Mount because he knows this. You know, there's, there's people that are coming there that day who can say, say literally, I have never killed anyone in my whole lifetime, so I'm innocent. I've ne- never committed adultery against my spouse ever, not one time have I ever done that. But Jesus, in what he says, he indicates that these things are a thing of the heart. It's the root that we got to get at. Because he says this, he says, If you've ever been angry with another, then you have broken that commandment of thou shalt not kill. Whoa. Where does that put us? Who here can say they've never been unjustly angry with anybody? I can't. I can't say that. I haven't been unjustly angry with anybody over the last week. Even last night when I was watching the Florida-Miami game. <laughs> Laurie will attest to that. See, this is the you. The you is everybody. Not just a special class of really, 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 really bad sinners that are worse than everybody else. In verse 16, Paul says, On the day when according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. Talk about the day of judgment coming. It's pretty scary when we think about the reality of God and, and one of those things is this. is We may have secrets from one another. I have secrets from Lori. She has secrets from me. One of these days she'll feel guilty and tell me, but We do. But the fact of the matter is, is we never have a secret from God. He knows everything. He sees everything. He hears everything. He reads the intentions of our very heart. He knows when we say one thing and we mean something else. You are a storybook. He knows you like you don't know yourself. The good stuff, because there's some good. But he also knows the bad. And it'll all come to light when that book is opened. I've wondered about this. Are we all going to be standing around when this is all going on and we're going to hear God talking about stuff that Charlie Barker did and we're all going to be going, oh. <laughs> I can't believe he did that. <laughs> I don't think that's what this picture is going to be like at all. There's something that I was reading about this week that really kind of brought things home for me, and that is this. is There's an intention for the law. There are a number of intentions of the law, but one of them is clearly this. It's to bring us in awe of the greatness and the wonder of our God. I mean, how many times have you looked upon the Ten Commandments as that? We look upon it as a list of do's and don'ts, right? To keep us out of trouble the way we think. How do I stay out of trouble? Well, I do those things God told me to do and don't do the things he told me not to do. I keep myself right with God. But the truth is this, is God's principal reason for doing, for giving the law to start with, and his principal reason for creating to start with, is to bring people into a sense of the greatness and the awesomeness of God. We don't talk about awe here. I'm talking about A-W-E. How many times have you felt awe In regard to anything in your lifetime. It's not one of those words that we use all that often. But we we know there's something special about it. It's this, this grandiose thing that goes beyond everything else. But I would challenge us this morning to begin to look on things like the Ten Commandments from a different light. It's not just a list of do's and don'ts. It's a picture of what, our, what an off filled relationship with God looks like. When we truly do have an inkling of understanding of who He is and who we are. And the most amazing thing is this. Is that being who He is and knowing who we are? That He loves us. That He wants us. You know, Israel in the beginning and in Judah was just a reflection of those people set apart for God's special purpose. It's the church. Set apart not to experience the wrath of God like the rest of humanity will, but to experience another aspect of God, and that is his greatness and his glory and his wonder, and that we would be in awe of him. This is what worship has to do with on Sunday morning. If you and I walk out that door this morning and we haven't had some sense of the awesomeness of God, then I have utterly and absolutely failed you and you need to go find another church. That's what my job is. It's to help all of us see God more Clearly. And as we do, to love him, to desire him, to worship him, not just when we come here on Sunday morning, but through our everyday life. Is it possible to mow your grass and worship God at the same time? Yeah. Possible to sweep the floors and worship God at the same time? Is it possible even, I wouldn't encourage you to text or do, you know, be messing with your phone or anything like that when you're driving down the road. But kid, is it conceivable that you can actually worship God while you're driving down the road? Yeah. Our lives in every aspect. Ought to be defined by a number of things, but one of those is they are lives dedicated to worshiping the God that we know, who has made himself known to us in very special ways that he doesn't make himself known to everybody. What a gift! Do you understand that ultimately the biggest gift, the greatest gift we could ever conceive of having, is God himself? And that's what he promises. And that's what we have. But it can always be enhanced. That's what we're talking about. Enhancing our relationship with him with every breath that we take. You want to invest in something? There's no better place to invest all your, your time, your resources, etc., etc., etc. In knowing God and encouraging others to know him too.